Hey, welcome to another edition of our Coaching You Podcast with the coach, Brendan Sir. And I think today it will be a special day. Uh, one of my oldest and dearest friends all the way back to college, Bob Delaney, who was a phenomenal NBA referee for 25 years and then uh, was the head of the referees as vice president of the NBA for referees uh, for five years. Uh, and now is a special advisor to Commissioner Greg Sankey with the SEC supervising all the officials in all sports there. Uh, but most importantly, besides being one of the best officials that I've ever had work a game, uh, he's just one of the most special human beings. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm telling you what you're going to hear in our second segment is as good as anything we've ever done on any of our Coaching You podcasts. <laughs> Hey, welcome to another edition of our Coaching You podcast with the coach, Brendan Sir, and one of my oldest friends in basketball, Bob Delaney, is my guest. And some of you are saying, Bob Delaney, name's familiar. Bob Delaney, who are you? Hey, Brendan, how are you? <laughs> um, who am I? I'm the guy that played against you in college, and uh, you and I uh, held each other to about three points each. I mean, we were off to the side doing nothing. It was all uh, defense. It was all defense was, by both of us. Brendan, it's been so many years and so good to be with you. Um, yeah, uh, where we also uh, got to have some arguments was during my years refereeing in the NBA, and you were coaching in the NBA. But um, for... Um, 14 years of my life, I was a New Jersey State Trooper and, and, and then uh, moved on into the NBA uh, as, a, as a referee for 24, 25 years. And then um, five years I was in management. And during that time, I was the NBA uh, Vice President, Referee Operations, Director of Officials and retired from all those. And then Commissioner Sankey offered me a position with the SEC, so I'm currently the officiating advisor for uh, referee development and performance. So obviously I can't hold a job. I move from one thing to the other. So uh, that that's a, a brief overview of my career. Well, and uh, knowing you as well as I do, uh, first of all, as a player, you were an incredible competitor <laughs> when when when. It, it, just like college basketball, it w uh, like pro basketball back when you started refereeing in the NBA, uh, very physical, very tough. And the guys in our area, in our era, and our area where we played, very very tough physical basketball at that level. And uh, it was and it was fun, and it was so amazing. Uh, let, let's first uh, our listeners, of which we have thousands across not just the uh, the U.S. but all over the world, are listening. And so the first time. Bob is ever refereeing an NBA game of mine. Uh, I, we've talked about this often, and uh, I'm with the Pistons, and I got the bad boys, and I got literally the bad boys. I got Lambeer, Rodman, uh, Mohorn, all these guys, and Isaiah, and it's as tough a group of people who have ever played the game. And before the game, we would do an opponent scouting report, but for Chuck Daly, the great Hall of Fame coach, it was more important for him, with our type of team, to give them a referee scouting report. And we would go over and say, okay, here's Ed Rush, here's Jack Madden, and here's uh, Earl Strom, et cetera. And we would say, okay, this, uh, you know, this is how we have to approach this. And, and literally, uh, you're, you're working the first game we've ever done with the Pistons. And in the locker room, I can, Chuck says, and the referees tonight are, uh, you know, Jack Madden and Bob Delaney and Jess Kersey. And, uh, 
And one of the guys says, who the F is Bob Delaney? And I said, well, I know him. He's, he's a friend of mine. You know, we played against each other in college. He's, now, don't F around with this guy. He's a tough guy. He's a former state trooper. He is one tough SOB. Don't play with him. All right? So now we're on the foul line in the first quarter, in the first quarter, Rick Mahorn's in that first slot next to you. You're standing right next to him like a good NBA referee would, and, and uh, you don't say anything. And Rick Mahorn says, I can't believe Brendan said you were a <laughs> 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 and, and, and you looked at me like your eyeballs were like lasers right through me. And I'm like, well, what's, what's wrong with you? And I don't find out till after the game when Mahorn says, man, I, 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 I played. Yeah, I did what you told me not to do. And I said, yeah, thanks a lot. But they loved you because, you know what, you let them play and you officiated like you played and, and you just called the game. And, and, they, and NBA players loved when you ref the game. Well, some most uh, I most like to say I'm, not, I'm sure that there's a few that would, would good MB, be, good NBA uh, players. <laughs> yes, but you know it, it was a different era. It, it was a different time. Um, you, you know, it was it was based on advantage disadvantage, um, and that's how we were taught to officiate. The yes. game has changed, and you know now it's illegal versus legal, uh, and so like everything changes. And, and I tell folks. Um, you know, because people say, you know, I like the game better than or like this. Sure. You know, it, it, life is full of changes. And, you know, I used to get off a plane and look for a phone booth. And today I got a phone <laughs> in my pocket. I mean, change comes. So our, our, our willingness to change with it is what's important. And um, that was it was tremendous ball back there. I, I, I've seen Ricky over the years and Isaiah and different guys from your team. And I would I, I tell them, you know, it, it, it was such a learning curve that took place there because I came from the Continental Basketball Association, which was a tough league. Um, it was uh, folks that didn't want to be there, coaches, uh, players, uh, or there were uh, misfits that couldn't stay in the NBA. And it was a tough league. And then getting and, and learning how to officiate there and then getting to the NBA and officiating during the era of the bad boys. I've told those guys, you you taught me how to be a good referee. Mm-hmm. You 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 gave me situations that um, if you can handle the bad boys and you can handle their games, you can handle any referee. You could officiate anywhere in the world. And um, it, uh, you remember the night? I think it was against Indiana. Um, it was like um, it, it, like a gang war was about to start. At the captain's meeting, the entire team from Detroit came to the captain's meeting. And then the entire team from Indiana came. And we're like staring off at each other, like lined up. And um, guys are bouncing balls and I'm yelling at them to, to hold the ball while Jess is trying to do the captain's meeting. But, uh, you know, those kinds of things don't take place today. But it, it, those were all learning situations. And it, and it was fun. It, it, it was great. Chuck was tremendous. Um, you know, it was just a, a great atmosphere to be in the palace. Hey, what was, uh, you know, you worked, you know, what did you work, Bob? 1,500, 1,700 games as a rep? 1,700 plus yeah. games, yeah. yeah. And, and what was it like? I mean, you, you for that era of 25 years, you saw the best. You did the finals all the time. What was Who were the best players that you officiated? 
Yeah, I mean, so and my, why, my, and my why first year was and why a little bit. My first year was uh, Julius's last year, so I got to referee Julius Irving. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, between Magic and Larry, and into the Bad Boy era, into Michael Jordan's era, uh, all through with uh, Kobe and Shaq, and uh, then into in, in LeBron. I I had a good run. I, I you know from '86 to uh, 2011. Uh, being on the floor with the greatest athletes in the world. And um, it was just a golden era of NBA basketball. So I was extremely fortunate. And then to have the relationships that you developed, you know, there's such a respect level. Um, and, and um, you know, even today still have conversations with Shaq and Charles and uh, different guys that you run into or, you know, texting back and forth with a few jokes. Uh, it, it, it's just tremendous to be part of it. It, it, it was an amazing uh, experience and it, it shaped my life in so many ways. Do you have a toughest game you ever worked or the tougher teams to officiate? Well, uh, we've been talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> your, your, your Detroit Pistons, no. uh, where, where every night you, it was a hard hat game. Yeah. You knew that you, you, you better put the uh, hard hat on and go to work because uh, they were going to challenge you and they were going to push you to the limits. Um, they had every trick in the book uh, back then. When we started, was two referees. Uh, mm. Ricky, to this day, will tell me that he knew where the blind spots were for us. He studied us, and he knew where he could take a shot with somebody going across the lane. Um, and then we put the third referee in, which which kind of helped clean things up. Uh, but it, again, it was a different era. It, it was an era where the body checks and the hand checks were allowed, and that's been taken out of the game. That is today's NBA game. And um, but um, you know. Alan Iverson, probably Ooh. one of the toughest guys I refereed pound for pound. I mean, right. that guy came down the lane, got hit, got back up and kept coming. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, phenomenal. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Dennis Johnson. Uh, Dennis Johnson would have been a star yes. in an, on his own team. And, and, and here's a guy that... Uh, you know, on, on the Celtics took a back seat to all the names that were uh, on that team. I mean... Everybody makes a big deal about three or four having two or three uh, great players on one team. There were seven or eight on every team back in the day. Yes. Uh, you know, there, there were players that could score twenty to thirty points a night if they were on different teams, and then they, they had such talent levels. Carl Malone and John Stockton and, and Mark Eaton. Uh, Mark Mark Eaton is um, you know just a mountain of a man. And, 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 and to be able to clog up that middle and then give that freedom to those other players to go make steals, the defense was uh, tremendous. And, uh, and having, I, I think they had uh, Hornacek and Thurl Bailey also on that team. You know, I mean, two that's great a heck of a complimentary team, man. players. Yeah, think about what you just said. That's take that five today and put them out there. They are going to compete. Um, so the athleticism and, but here's the other part. What, what I say to referees is that you truly become a professional referee when you understand how to navigate the will to win that's on the floor. What's coming at you is not personal. What's interpreted by coaches and players is that when you make a call, you're getting the way, you're getting in the way of their win. So their will to win is so strong and there's nothing like the will to win. Mm -hmm. That's in the NBA. I shouldn't say that. I, I, you know, I'm sure that will to win is 
even at the high school level, college level, people want to win. But when you take the will to win that's at the NBA level and then put it with the talent, that becomes a major storm that's coming at you. And how do you keep that corralled so that it doesn't get out of control? That's what officiating is. Mm. Um, and, and, and those are using every life skill. It's using all your talents as an official, but also it's hard work. And the responsibility of officials is the same as what takes place with every team. There's three teams in every game, the two competing and the officiating team. And that officiating team has to work as hard as those teams. So th- you know how much uh, video work has to be done in order to coach yes. at, at the college and, and, and uh, pro level. And, and probably I would say at the high school level today. Right. The, 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 the amount of video work, that's the only way you get better. Well, that's the same thing for officials. You have to be willing to sit down there and not say you're great. Say, why did I get that right and how can I repeat it? Why did I get that wrong and how do I have to adjust to get it right the next time? You know, when uh, <clears throat> when you were first starting in the league as an official, um, you know, your very first year, there were some legendary uh, officials, the great, yes. the great Earl Strom and, uh, you know, these guys that uh, they were superstars in their field. Would you agree? I mean, yes. you know, yeah, and, absolutely. and they dominated and they were great. And and what was it like for them to, you know, coach you in essence in that locker room beforehand and i and i maybe some were helping but i i, I really hope that most of them were in giving you tips you know what was that like from those guys yeah it was great mentoring as i That's said the word two, two referees yeah. on the road i was with jess kersey and you evans those were two guys superstar people so yeah. my first year the only referees that i worked with um were you evans jess kersey and daryl garrettson now if I look back, I remember one game with Jake because uh, somebody got injured in, in a couple games with Mike Mathis. But predominantly, I stayed with that group. Those five guys were the only guys I refereed with. And you think about how they managed games and how they ran situations. And um, Mike Mathis one night, at a, um, um, it, 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 give him props, at, at a captain's meeting, introduced me to the players. And I forget exactly what team it was. And he introduced me as saying, I'm a rookie in the NBA, but I'm not a rookie in the game of life. And he gave my resume about the undercover work <laughs> I did in the law enforcement. He said, this guy gets it. And, you know, those kinds of things, you uh, Evans would do that as well. He would talk to players about who I was as a person. And those kinds of things, because the players trusted you Evans. They yes. trusted Mathis. They trusted that. They trust. They, they may not like them but they trusted them knowing that they knew their craft. And then when those guys spoke up for you and then you had to do your job, then it's like anything in life. Somebody can open a door, but then you got to prove that you belong. I have three, three areas that I think it's for coaching. It's for playing and it's for refereeing. You first have believable, believability, then you have credibility and then there's trust. So, um, you know, when I first start refereeing, you got to believe I can referee. And then I get a credibility rating with you. But then there's a level of trust that even if I mess up a call, you trust that I can still handle this game. If I'm in my first year and you've never seen me referee and I go to throw the ball up and I can't even toss the ball, it, it goes bad <laughs> on the first toss. You've lost all trust in me as an official. 
Exactly. So um, it's so important to have the trust of, of, of the players and coaches. There's a saying I heard from uh, the speaker, Andy Stanley, the ultimate form of human currency is trust. And I, yes. and I love it. And that's exactly that credibility that you had and were given validated you. And that was so good. After this time out, Bob, we're going to come back and explore a little more. Thank you. Fast Model Sports is the world's most comprehensive, versatile basketball coaching software to help power your preparation. Fast Model has developed the industry's best coaching software, including the number one play diagramming and playbook software, Fast Draw. Fast Draw bridges the gap between whiteboarding in the digital world with an incredibly easy to use interface that can be used on both your computer and iPad to providing maximum portability for your own personal play and drill database. It doesn't stop there. Along with FastPro, they have other great programs such as Fast Scout, which helps coaches create clean, professional scout reports customized for your team. Fast Model is trusted and used by all NBA and WNBA teams, 85% of Division I college teams, and over 8,000 high school and youth teams from over 75 countries around the world. In addition to a great product, they also provide basketball coaching resources through their blog and play bank, which features over 5,000 free plays and drills on their online coaching community. For access to these plays and more information, visit FastModelSports.com or follow them on Twitter at FastModel. Hey, back with Bob Delaney. I'm not sure how to describe him other than my friend, phenomenal Hall of Fame referee, and beyond all explanation, one of the top consultants in the world on life and everything else that goes with it. Uh, we've been through a lot together, my friend, in a lot of different areas, um, you know, but let's talk first um, about, you know, before you came into the league, after, you, know, I, you know, I thought the last time we played against each other, Montclair State and Jersey City State, now New Jersey, is it New Jersey University now? New, New Jersey City University. Yeah, New yeah. Jersey City University. And now, you know, I said, oh, I'll, I'll probably never see him again. And the next thing, you know, you know, you're in the league. But then I heard you were a state trooper. Why did you join? Why did you become a state trooper? You know, Brent, I never thought that that was what, my dad was a state trooper. I didn't and know that. Um, okay. that, that organization is uh, steeped in deep military tradition. It was founded by Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the famed General H. Norman Schwarzkopf of the Gulf Wars. Wow. And um, so everything was uh, in 1921 when it was founded, Colonel Schwarzkopf. Um, you know, brought all the West Point stuff down. And I, and as a younger guy, I, I, I saw my dad doing that, and it wasn't really of interest to me. And then when I was in college, um, you know, I got Budweiseritis between my junior and senior year where I couldn't dunk anymore. Um, that summer was a little rough. And uh, I came back, and I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of playing time my senior year. But also, I was starting to look and say, um, where do I want to go in life? And at that time, the state police had not given a test for five years uh, for, for troopers. Um, there was a hold. There was a freeze. There was all kinds of things going on. So there were no new recruits coming in. And they, find, they were going to give a test. And I had to make a decision. And I had gotten to the point that that's what I wanted to do. I felt this, like, calling uh, wow. to be able to help people. And um, 
so I, I said I had to make a decision, and, and I left in my senior year from uh, New Jersey, uh, Jersey City State College, now New Jersey State University, and uh, went in the state police. Uh, went back and got my degree years later. Um, but um, that, that opened a whole other door as well because what, after a year and a half on the job um, in, in the state of New Jersey back then, it was a heck of a gig because you lived in the station for two days, went home for two days. You only worked 15 days a month. It was really uh, towns that we didn't have their own police department. Oh, wow. uh, we became the local cops for it, as well as doing the miles and smiles on the highway, handing out the tickets and <laughs> yes, uh, right. doing accidents. Been there. But uh, they, <laughs> they pulled me for an undercover job. And uh, they told me it was going to be six months, and it was the President's Organized Crime Task Force, the FBI, and New Jersey State Police joining forces to find, uh, to figure out organized crime, to have an infiltration into organized crime. That then became three years of my life. I became another person. Um, a catchy name for an undercover guy, I became Robert Allen Covert, but it wasn't <laughs> trying to be funny or cute. Um, the dirt, birth records and death records are not cross-indexed in our country. So uh, if you go to the birth record side, find a child that died at birth, you can get that birth certificate. And um, I mean, death certificate, you can go to the birth certificate side, get the birth certificate. And, and that's how we started the personas. And myself and other state trooper, three FBI agents, we started a trucking company. Um, and it grew into a larger trucking company. At one point, we had like uh, 15, 20 trucks hauling <laughs> for us around the United States and infiltrated the Genovese and Bruno crime families. As a result of that job, we locked up a lot of bad guys, but today I understand and realize that the reason to go through that experience was about helping good people, men and women who serve our country. So I, I, I work with the military, law enforcement, firefighters, first responders in the area of post-traumatic stress. I call it operational stress. They see what the rest of the world does not see. But it's expanded, Brendan. It's expanded to corporations and sport teams now that I, that I spend time with. Uh, helping them navigate the emotions um, that we all have. We all have stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Stuff is part of life. And how do we navigate it? And um, our, our, our willingness to be open and, 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 and have conversation with another person, I call the peer-to-peer -peer conversation. I used to call it peer-to-peer -peer therapy, but I use everything I can to take medical-sounding terms away. Mm -hmm. Because from my view, I think we've over-medicalized this subject and we scare people away from the subject, from the conversation. That doesn't mean that we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. We have tremendous resources. We just have to figure out how to build better, better bridges. Because think of all that's going on in our society today. All of that's taking place. Um, many people don't have outlets. Um, but we've got to create a mental wellness program in our society that is no different than our physical wellness. So you know, the same way that I get up to brush my teeth in the morning, the same way that I'm going to work out at some point today, I have to take time to think about my mental wellness. And I don't think we approach it in that way in our society as of yet. And my hope is that we move the bar and have an understanding that it's okay to talk about things that bother you. It's okay to admit to your own insecurities and figure out how I can become a better person. Um, I use an analogy. If I, if I had a balloon full of air, uh, how do I get the air out of the balloon? I could take a pin and pop it. I get the air out, but I don't have a balloon anymore. I can let it go. It flies all over the room. It goes out the back door. We don't know what happened to the balloon. But if I'm patient and willing to listen to sounds I do not want to hear, that screeching noise, eventually I'll get all the air out of the balloon. And I'll have a full balloon to be able to use again one day. That's us with trauma. That's us with stuff. We need to get the air out of our balloons. 
But what do we do? More often than not, we push one down on top of another. And if you take that analogy to its logical conclusion, at some point, the balloon is going to burst. So our ability to help each other. And, you know, Brent, I've written two books, one covert, my years infiltrating the mob, which is the undercover story. And it talks about my post-traumatic stress towards the end and how basketball was my therapy. Mm -hmm. Getting back on that court as a referee was therapeutic for me. I didn't understand what I do today how it was helping me uh, with the running and the endorphins being released and, 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 and being able to take care of my hypervigilance by looking around the floor. But it gave me an inner peace. And the second book I wrote is called Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress. And the reason I call it that is we all have shadows, yet never fear, never be afraid of a shadow is what I tell folks. Because if there is a shadow, that means there's light nearby. And it's our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to help each other get to that light and um, so that we move away from the shadow. When, uh, you know, Zach Kendrick is, you know, my CEO with Coaching You and uh, also myself, we, we were involved, we recruited, and we're very close to Wade Sims, the young man that was murdered last year. And I was so thankful, is probably the best word, and comforted when I found out that you and Commissioner Sankey allowed you to come down and visit with the LSU team and coaches to help them through this terrible, terrible time. Can you, mm-hmm. can you talk about that as much as you can? Yeah. Um, one, one of the things that um, you know, the conversation was had that, um, you know, the commissioner knew I do this kind of work um, that to, to allow every resource to be available to the team and, and to the players and to the coaching staff. So, what takes place when you have something like that is intentional decision-making so that what I call the second injury doesn't take place. Um, when you have an invisible wound, um, many times you know people will say things that will cause for that scab to come off that wound. So, for example, someone loses someone, um, time will make it better. Time doesn't make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no closure. Uh, all these kinds of words are, are just words that are out there to make someone else feel better. The person that has gone through the tragedy and has gone through the loss has a processing and a journey, and, it, and it's individual. There's no timetable. So what we wanted the players to be able to do is be able to voice what their feelings were. So, But that doesn't happen overnight, right? So I, I would go and speak with them and, and share my story about how I had to release some of the stuff that was inside of me from doing that undercover work, um, share with them stories of military uh, cops and firefighters that I've worked with about uh, what they've experienced and uh, how these horrific tragedies come into our life and how, how we can best honor that person who died. And, and that is our responsibility to live life to the fullest in honor, in honor of them. And so there was a lot of intentional decision-making that, that took place, you know, when the team photo was, was had is that Wade's jersey was on a chair in the team photo that um, in, the, in their locker room, that plexiglass was put up over his locker so that it was a memorial that they only saw to him. It was theirs, uh, pictures and photographs of him in the locker room. Um, they had a tremendous um, resources within that um, uh, coaching staff that um, they were so hurt and yet had to become... Uh, almost parental in helping their players 
Um, so that emotional roller coaster ride and the anger that comes with it, um, if you're prepared and people talk to you about it and you become aware of it, you, you, you navigate it better. The way I describe it, Brendan, is we've done this before. We've done it with HIV AIDS. We've done it with alcohol. We've done it with drugs. We've done it with tobacco. We provided education and awareness to help people navigate it even better. So we need to do the same thing with trauma. When traumas come into our lives, we need education and awareness. So understanding what triggers are, understanding that there's a physiology to it, understanding the hypervigilance, the, the, the sleep patterns are going to be disrupted. Your eating patterns are disrupted. And how do we get on track to be able to live a life of honor, to honor the individual who we're grieving or, or, or that traumatic experience that we had? Bob, when, uh, the things happened in El Paso and Dayton. What went through your mind that in that one day it happened, and and I know it had to stun you, and you were immediately, as you are, the caregiver you are, you immediately were thinking of a solution. I'm sure. Yeah, many times when these take place, Brendan, I um I, I reach out uh, to the police departments and, and and make myself available. Uh, I've been at uh, shootings, uh, you know, Oakland Police Department. Uh, four police officers were killed there in 2009. Uh, I, I went and spent time with that police department after the shootings at Fort Hood in um, Texas. Uh, General Cohn uh, brought me in, and I spent um, days upon days uh, with the folks there. I, I travel around and, and, and share this operational stress education and awareness that we spoke about. I'll be going to Korea uh, September 2nd to the 8th and meeting with our, uh, the men and women who serve us there. But it's not only the men and women who serve us. It's their families. Mm. Um, so when these things happen, um, you know, unfortunately, we've, we're all getting too used to these things happening. It's tragic at the time, and then it kind of fades away, unfortunately. And that's a whole other discussion for another time. But immediately, my thought process is, how, how can we offer some help? How, how is there a way that the resources, I'm, I'm a, on the advisory board of TAPS, which is a tragedy assistance program for survivors. Um, Bonnie Carroll uh, started this 25 years ago. And um, it's the families of the fallen of our troops, whether they were killed in battle, um, killed in action, or, or died a natural death, or committed suicide. They're, this organization cares for those families in, in, in ways of helping them process their healing journey. And this is where sports comes in, because what we developed was a program with the NBA referees, where the referees would take those families to the games for a special kind of experience. But we tie it to the individual who um, had died. If he was a fan or she was a fan of a particular team, by going to those games with the family and having the back of the house kind of experience, it's special. But they also are remembering how much their special person, their their hero, loved this one team. So it's all part of the healing journey. And that's what sports does, that's man. Great. It's not just about the numbers that get put up on a board about who wins or loses. It's about how it gives you an inner peace. It's about that diversion from what you're going through. You know, what sports does is give a, a cancer patient off from being a cancer patient for three hours while they become a fan. They give uh, when I'm in the military and I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan numerous times and I've watched the Super Bowl in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, you watch those troops. They're not soldiers then they're fans. So what we have is a responsibility well beyond 
the wins and losses. We're, we're doing a service in this country of, of, of entertainment and diversion. and um, All those things are important in our lives to, to maintain balance. Bob, when I'm obviously, you know, large part of your life, you had to carry a gun as part of your mm-hmm. job. Okay. And, uh, and God bless that. And, but now, with guns, especially the war, as they say, the war, um, you know, machine guns, the AKs and all that mm-hmm. stuff, uh, that probably should not be on our streets, to put it mildly. Okay, now, our guys have to go over, our veterans have to go over, they're in war, okay, and they come home. Talk about the PTSDs, that they, they're, they're, you know, the PT. As syndrome that they're going through when they come home and why we have so many military folks committing suicide. I think it's such a terrible thing, such a sad thing. Can you help us with that? Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's horrific. Um, You know, we, we, um, we have an epidemic taking place with suicide in our, in our our society. And um, when when you think about when it comes to law enforcement and to uh, firefight, excuse me, law enforcement and military, um, the high uh, levels of it is because they have access to the weaponry to commit that suicide. So, you know, not everyone has a gun on their hip. Not everyone has a gun in their draw. Um, many people do. But uh, police officers and military are so used to that being part of them that when that decision is made to commit suicide, the, the availability of the weapon is what causes for the high uh, number, uh, among other things, but sure. a weapon weapons uh, being available. So if you take that same concept, um, and, and a, not to make this a political statement, but my belief is is that um, the only ones that should have the kind of weaponry that we're talking about that some of these uh, shootings are taking place are cops and uh, military. Absolutely. Uh, what you know when our everybody wants to say to the Constitution, and I and I agree wholeheartedly. You have the right to bear arms. I get that, but they were talking about muskets. They were talking about uh, they weren't talking about uh, 40 clips uh, that could be shot within six seconds. Uh, those are the kinds of things that need to be addressed in our society. And what's sad is that we've got Newtown that takes place. We've got um, El Paso. We can go down the list, uh, the pulse shooting down in Orlando. Um, I, I've, I've spoken to people that have been at all of those events. And there's not a reason that should be taking place in our world today. I mean, it it gets you, starts to get you angry because I can't believe we can put people on a moon, but we can't solve these kinds of problems. We're better than this. And um, you you can imagine that as a coach, if your team was losing uh, somehow, some way, you were going to bring them into winning. And that's what we have to do. It's not about, you know, we've gotten to the point that it's, uh, like the Yankees and the Mets when it comes to <laughs> both parties. Uh, we've got to be about what's right for America and what's right for the people in our, in our communities. Amen. Let's take a time out. Let's take a second to tell you about one of our partners, Dr. Dish. Dr. Dish basketball shooting machines are the most high-tech and durable basketball shooting machines on the market. Each shooting machine was designed specifically for high repetition training to allow players to improve through technology. Dr. Dish offers game-like training to give hundreds of shooting reps in just minutes and provide powerful analytics to help players improve their game. 
Dr. Dish has also introduced Skill Builder, which is the first of its kind in the basketball shooting machine industry that enables players and coaches to stay connected, design and upload training exercises, and instantly receive feedback on their workout, allowing for real-time adjustments and improved performance. It is, without question, the most innovative basketball training machine on the market. To learn more about Dr. Dish, log on to drdishbasketball.com or follow them on Twitter at drdishbball. Don't forget to mention Coaching You and receive $300 off on your next Dr. Dish purchase. That's right. Mention Coaching You or the podcast and get $300 off your Dr. Dish. Back with Bob Delaney. Um, Bob, uh, I mean... The things we just finished talking about, if you're a coach and you're responsible for kids, I mean, uh, and having known Wade like I did and his family, uh, but any player that, you know, have had uh, just or anyone you, you're in the workplace with that something happens to, uh, the advice that you give about really, in essence, you know, for a former referee, I'm really going to piss you off. You're, you're, you're really a coach. You really, you coach people, you help them. Get, I always say the definition of coaching is taking people where they can't take themselves. And that's what you do, my friend. It's well, I'll tell you stuff. what, that's a, that's, that's a, a heck of a compliment. And, and, and while people think that referees and coaches and players are arguing, uh, the, the reality is the relationships that are developed. And we, we all have a mutual respect Yes. for what we do on the floor. I mean, um, coaching is an honorable position. It's an honorable, it's a noble, noble profession uh, to be able to influence uh, young men, young women, and, and, and have an influence on them as they come through the school. I, I, my coach, Bob Lucinic was my high school coach. Larry Shiner was my college coach. These two guys had such an influence on my life. And, um, you know, I think back almost weekly, something will come up that I remember they taught me. <laughs> they taught me through the game of basketball about the game of life. Yes. You know, now, you, you know, you're probably, you know, after all the years where, you know, it's the business of basketball, you know, NBA basketball, it's, it's a mm-hmm. business. And, okay, and we love that. And it was the best parts of our life in many ways. But now at the college level, it's a whole different thing. The kids are younger. Uh, the rules are different. Uh, talk about that experience of working with that age group. And now at, at the officials, you're working with athletes, but at the same time, you're working with officials who are helping athletes. Yeah, that um, this, this move over to the SEC has been such a blessing in my life uh, at this point uh, to be around the universities. And I didn't get, you know, I didn't referee through colleges. I came through the Continental Basketball Association, as right. I said earlier. So, you know, being around the environments, I mean, and going to the ball games, whether, and, and my responsibility is to all sports. So yeah. um, I, I spend time with the football officials, uh, with Steve Shaw and the coordinators do such a tremendous job and, and to be at the, at the schools, like I go to Texas A&M and I'll speak to the uh, team, the football team on uh, tomorrow. Um, I'll, I'll be down there and um, to be around the young folks, it keeps you young and it keeps you engaged 
but also to be in those environments, like we're used to piped in music in the NBA, you know, and pretty much the same music is being played in every arena. And, but to have those live bands mm-hmm. in, a, in a smaller environment um, it, and, and to see the alumni come back and then the students in, in, in the arenas and then in the stadiums and then the baseball, like oh. I, I go to SEC baseball, it's phenomenal. I mean, the amount of crowds they get, the softball is tremendous. Um, soccer, volleyball, the gymnastics, uh, the whole environment is just so healthy. And, and um, I'm, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm just blessed, man, to be part of this. You know, Brent, there's a reality, right? I mean, you and I are the same age. And, yep. and, and uh, you come to an understanding, there's only so many pages left in your book. <laughs> you know what I mean? The blank pages are filling up, man. And so you want to make sure that the blank pages that I fill up now are meaningful. Um, that they help others that, uh, it, it, and, and being part of the SEC has given me that opportunity. I, I have a little journal sized notebook out and I had a damn blank page and I just shut the damn book. Now. <laughs> <laughs> There's only somebody left. Yeah, no, he's, a ch- he's crying out loud. You, you know, I, I think, you know, it, you know, the thing about, uh, you and our relationship over the years is, uh, I think, you know, we saw through the W and the L's and stuff that were going on, and we saw two friends that were really after the same thing, just trying to do our best and try to help uh, people become better. And you're a high-performance expert, and more importantly, you're a high-performer in the game of life, man. And anyone, Bob, that uh, if you, you know, we have so many people from all over the world. If someone wanted to get a hold of you to try to help them with their group or to come in and speak to them when you have free time, because you have so much free time, you know, is there any way they can email you or anything to get in touch with you? Yeah, it's, uh, if they go to my website, www.delaneyconsultants.com, my last name, consultants.com, they can uh, get to me through there. Um, but, um, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity and, and, and making that available because if there's a way I can help, I will. And if, um, I'm, I can't, I'll, I'll put them in touch with somebody who can. Well, you know, you've been a dear friend for, you know, for the almost, uh, almost 50 years we've been friends and, uh, yes. and it's, yes. and, and it's one of those, that's why, that's why we're in our business. So, you know, some, you know, someone said when you, you know, when you move into management, you're a performer your whole life. But when you move into management, the key is you got to be committed to not worrying about yourself or worrying about other people. And, man, you are extraordinary at that. So, Bob, thanks so much for sharing today. Thanks, Brendan. Appreciate it. And to everybody out there, stay healthy, stay safe, take care of one another. All right. Love you, Brendan. Thank you, my friend. Love you, Bob. Listen, that is if you have an opportunity where you want to get Bob to – you know, help out your organization, team, et cetera. Try to reach out to him, see if he can help. Uh, again, uh, as I promised you, uh, one of the most unique individuals that I've ever been involved with uh, and a great friend, uh, an incredible talent, not just a referee extraordinaire, but a person extraordinaire. Till next week, uh, this is the coach, Brendan Sir. 